Nation Nail Salon and Grocery Store. Wait, she's at the nail salon and the grocery store? I'm at the Combination Nail Salon and Grocery Store. Groceries through Instacart, delivered to my door. I don't have to choose between acrylics and the grocery store. The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good men and women around the world who want to make a difference. The engagement and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed. But the only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up edition, and I'm your host, Bob Ruff. And I'm your co-host, Mike Bussing. In this week's Friday follow-up, we're going to be covering two episodes. As, of course, you all know, we took last week off, so this is the follow-up for episode 312 and 311. As a quick refresher before we move on, episode 311 was the Grove Rats episode, and then 312 was the Mother's Day episode, where we got into a little bit about the school schedule and also revealed that Jesse's case has now been picked up by Dallas County's Conviction Integrity Unit. So, Mike, I think those are some of the topics we plan to cover today. Yeah, absolutely. So in just a minute, we're going to get right into the content, but before we do that, I want to send out a heartfelt congratulations to three students at the Texas Tech University School of Law. So you all will be downloading this episode on Friday, May 19th. As you're downloading this episode, Mrs. Ruff and I will be getting on a plane and heading down to Lubbock, Texas, so we can help celebrate with three of Allison's students that have been working hand-in-hand with us on Jesse Eldridge's and Edward Eight's case. So a huge congratulations to Rudy, Ashley, and Mercedes of the Texas Tech School of Law Innocence Clinic. There are, of course, more students in the clinic, but these are the three that I have been working with, along with Allison, on both of these last two cases. They've all three been a huge help, and when they suggested that maybe I might want to come down and watch them graduate, I am more than excited to go do that. So, that's where I'll be heading today, as you're listening to this podcast. One more time, congratulations to Ashley, Rudy, and Mercedes, and I'm sure you'll be listening today, so I'll see you guys tomorrow. Congrats, guys. All right, let's get started with the show. All right, Bob, in this week's episode, you dropped a bombshell when you told everybody that Jesse's case was going to be taken on by the Dallas County Conviction Integrity Unit. And I think everybody's really excited about this. So to get into it, what exactly is their process when working towards an exoneration? Meaning the Conviction Integrity Unit's process? Yeah. Well, I don't know exactly. I mean, this is such a different situation than we were in with Ed's case. Right. So in Ed's case, we're literally like fighting against the prosecutor's office and like trying to get them to hear the case. Right. And in this case, the prosecutor's office is also trying to what they do is what their name says is they evaluate the integrity of the conviction, meaning is this a good conviction? Uh, And so what their process is, I believe, is that they're going to do kind of the same things that we do in phase one of our investigation, meaning they're going to they're going to look and see what evidence was there to convict this person. And then they're going to go through and they're going to look at the trial transcripts and they're going to see, was there any misconduct here? Was there any Brady violations here? 
Um, a big thing that the Dallas uh, CIU specifically does is test for DNA. You know, that was when Craig Watkins, who's been on the show, he's the one that started the CIU in Dallas. When he first took over, that was the first thing in their docket was look for any cases with untested DNA and get them tested. Okay. But the thing is, in a lot of cases, and, and Jesse's is one of them, the, it may not be that obvious that there is DNA to be tested. So it's, you know, there, there are cases where they know that biological evidence was collected, right? So there's, you know, we, I've got a beaker full of semen here. Right. They're probably not a beaker. <laughs> petri dish? Let's go uh, with petri dish. Uh, right, right, right. So a, a petri dish full of semen here, uh, as gross as that sounds. Uh, but they know that, that that's there. Maybe it was from like the, the 60s or 70s before they could uh, do any testing with that. Or they have like a pair of underwear that they know that there's semen on or something like that. Uh, they might test. And those are kind of flagged as DNA cases. Okay. Uh, where in Jesse's case, it looked like there really was no DNA originally. Back in the 1991 through 1996 reports through the trial, they swabbed the knife and determined that there was insufficient quantities of anything for DNA on the knife. Mm. Um, and then, of course, the keys that were sent back to the prosecutor by Kenneth Gove. You know, those are just keys. I don't, I don't think the prosecutor ever even looked at them for the way it sounded at trial. So now that we're coming in, we have um, Allison and her team and you and I and all of the Truth and Justice Army really digging into this case. We were taking another look and saying, wait a minute. Now, with the 2017 methods for testing DNA, let's go see where that knife's at. Let's find that knife, which we found the knife uh, now, and say let's let's send that out for DNA. So normally that's and then and then normally the process is we then have to ask the prosecutor, "Hey, can we test this?" Okay, uh, and and sometimes they'll allow it, and sometimes they'll fight it, and then we have to file motions to put it before a judge for a judge to decide if you can test it. So that that's where the big difference is with the CIU mm -hmm. is with the conviction integrity unit. They they want the same thing we want. We're maybe more like you know free Jesse, you know get him out of there. The CIU is more like we don't want a conviction on our books that wasn't a legit conviction. I see. And so by taking on his case and then proving that he was wrongfully convicted, they're actually kind of making themselves look bad. Well, in a way, uh, it just depends on how you look at it. So the, I guess they're making uh, the prosecutors of 1996 look bad. Sure. Uh, which is tough. But to me, like that, like I think that it's an appropriate name, the Conviction Integrity Unit, uh, because I think it shows a lot about the integrity of that prosecutor's office. Because it does, you're exactly right. I mean, that's that's nothing that should be taken lightly. They're picking up cases that their office prosecuted and sent someone away to prison for life in Jesse's case. Mm -hmm. And they're saying, well, let's give this another look and make sure we did it right. And maybe we didn't. And that's that's not an easy pill to swallow, but I think it speaks to the integrity of the Dallas County District Attorney's Office that they're willing to do that. And they're doing it with Jesse's case specifically. Okay, and a couple things regarding the CIU, their investigation, and then your show. Are you going to be assisting them at all as far as maybe uh, turning over any documents that you might have that they don't or giving them information that you've, you know, that maybe listeners have given you anything like that? Or is it going to be kind of completely separate from what you do? Uh, it's, it's a little tricky. Uh, I think it's going to be a, a one-way flow of information for sure. Um, I think that the, the DA is probably a little uncomfortable with having not only a podcaster investigating the case along with, you know, a few hundred thousand listeners, uh, and, and then, and then us specifically going out and interviewing witnesses and things like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, and so I, I'm trying to be cognizant of that. Where, you know, because the last thing I want to do is conflict with or get in the way of their process. 
But at the same time, the CIU is doing something very differently than what we're doing. So, so they're, they're looking at the integrity of the conviction, right? So they're trying to see, is Jesse Eldridge innocent or did Jesse Eldridge not receive a fair trial? That's all they're doing. That's, and that's all their job is. Where what we're doing is in the phase that we're in now is we're trying to say, okay, we've moved past that. We know Jesse Eldridge is innocent. Yeah. So now we're trying to say, well, who did it? So now we're looking for justice for Keow. That's not the DA's job right now. So we're in, in in different areas, but so I'm quite certain that the district attorney's office is not going to come to me and say, "Hey, Bob, we found some stuff. Do you want to talk about it on the podcast?" Yeah, that's not gonna that's not gonna happen. Also, with the DA's involvement, with the the conviction integrity unit's involvement, I think it, it complicates things a little bit too. Even with us working with Allison and her team at the Innocence Project, because now they, Allison and uh, the DA Cynthia Garza, are kind of working together on this case. Well, then you, you run into some confidentiality issues. So it's, 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 you know, we haven't really discussed it too much, but it's, I, I'm not expecting to get a whole lot more from Allison at this point. If the DA gives her new information, there's going to be some confidentiality issues that go with that. And I'm not, you know, a licensed investigator on Allison's team. I'm, I'm like, I'm this weird, like I'm, I'm, I'm an investigator, but I'm media also. Yeah. And so it's not, it's not okay for her to, for Allison to share information from the DA with the media, mm-hmm. which is me and you and all of us here together. So uh, I think moving forward, I, I mean, the, I think the relationship's good. It's a weird one. We're trying to kind of, and that was part of the the conversation that we had on the phone, was just trying to like, okay, how does this work? This is new. So first we had to, uh, in the last season, figure out, okay, how does this work when we have uh, an attorney, Allison, working for a client and we're investigators slash press how does that relationship work? Because attorneys typically keep things pretty tight to the chest. They don't share things. Right. We kind of got right about the time we figured that out. Now we brought in a DA that wants to work with us. Yeah. And so it gets a little more complicated. So I guess the that's a long answer. But the short answer is from you know, we're going to do whatever we can do to continue trying to solve this case. We've got some good leads. And, and fortunately, what we're working on right now has nothing to do with what the CIU is working on. Um, the last thing we want to do is get in their way. And if we find anything... We're going to tell them, and if they find something, uh, you'll read about it in a press release, probably, because <laughs> they're probably not going <laughs> to... Not on the Truth and Justice podcast. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Well, you know, I'd like to hope that, you know, at least they give me uh, give me the scoop, right? Let, right. Me, let me break the news if something cool is happening. Yeah. Uh, but but things are going really well now. I'm, I'm super... I'll tell you this. I'm super excited that the CIU is on board, because that means there are, there are literally no hoops to jump through. Like, like say, like, the, the knife. Allison can literally have a conversation and say, hey, I think we should test this knife. And, and since they're looking for the same thing, they're like, yeah, let's do it. It, it could be out in the mail already, you know, that, yeah. that, ha- that fast. So uh, hopefully it's going to be a really good relationship, which mostly involves me staying out of their way. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. All right. Now on to our next topic. I was looking at the fan page and there's been a lot of activity, a lot of discussion. And I want to cover some things that I thought were pretty cool. Listener Gary Yam came up with a couple of polls on the fan page, and each one got about 100 recipients, and I thought they covered some pretty interesting information. So the first poll was, do you think Kiel brought the knife that was found in her hand? Out of 86 respondents, 40 said, I don't know, 29 said yes, and 17 said no. So I know this is a fairly small sample compared to all of our listeners, but these are some pretty interesting numbers, Bob. I'm actually surprised by that. I hadn't seen that poll. That I'm surprised. What did you say? There was like 40? 40 said they don't know. So that's that's about half, right? Yeah, out of eighty six. Wow. So okay, so about half the people think or don't know if she had the if she was carrying. The, so I guess that would mean. And then and there was what like seventeen that said twenty nine said yes and seventeen said no. Okay, so the seventeen that said no, like then if they're saying no, that means they believe that it was planted. Yeah, I assume. Okay. Yeah. 
Uh, was there a lot of discussion on it, or was it just a straight poll? Yeah, there was some discussion, but it seemed to me that a lot of people were just on the fence about it. I'll have, to, I'll have to go read that and see. Because, like I said, I'm surprised at those numbers because it's kind of like in order to say that she didn't have the knife with her. I mean, that's taking a hell of a leap. Like that's turning this into a some kind of crazy conspiracy at this point. The, the knife from her house was planted in her hands. Not that that's you know when I, I shouldn't say crazy conspiracy, but we're getting into a really complicated crime scene at this point. Sure. Uh, rather than than assume the most simple solution, which is she was just carrying the knife. Food for thought. More conversation that I had with Low Daniels. It wasn't recorded that we were we were emailing back and forth uh-huh. uh, or talking on Facebook Messenger. I don't remember which one, uh, but he was talking about the knife and he was saying that he thought it was perfectly normal for uh, he said especially like white or Asian people, especially women, to carry large butcher knives for protection in the area at the time. You're kidding me. Uh, you no, know, and I was I was <laughs> like, what? I should have I should have talked to him about it when we were interviewing, but we kind of ran out of time. As you heard in the last episode, I had to tuck Parker in. But no, he was he said it was like like the cops like turned a blind eye to it. It was like it was like it was almost like if you're carrying an eight inch butcher knife, then we know you're just trying to protect yourself, as opposed to if you're carrying a switchblade, you're actually planning on doing harm with it. And like he said, in Kiao's case, and I think I did get some of that in the interview, but we just hadn't cut it into an episode yet, uh, where he said that, you know, she probably had no intention of actually using the knife. No one ever does. You know, when they're when they're grabbing a knife for protection, it's it's more of a deterrent or something to make you feel better. Uh, so in, anyway, in his in his opinion, it wouldn't be uncommon at all to see you know uh, a middle aged woman walking the walking alone carrying a big butcher knife. Hmm. Um, but that's, but that's really interesting that, that so many people have so many questions and, and Gary is, uh, we mentioned Gary Yam, I think on uh, our last follow up too. Gary is the devil's advocate of the truth and justice page. I yeah. really like his post and I, I hope I, he and I have discussed things back and forth a little bit. And I hope he nor anybody else takes it as like, uh, that, that I don't like the stuff he's saying, but he, but Gary always has the question on there. That's like the devil's advocate really like, sure. like you think this, this and this, but what if none of that's true? Yeah, is kind of is kind of how he rolls, and it generates some awesome discussion. So, so Gary is the one that did that poll. He, yeah, he did actually. He did both the polls on the on the fan page. Uh, the other one was, do you think the Z twenty eight was linked to the murder? That one had ninety one responses, with seventy nine saying yes and twelve saying no. So those numbers are probably a little more expected. Actually, weird. I I kind of would think those would have gone the other way. It's so now like the Z twenty eight. That's one of Gary's big things. Is we have nothing linking the Z. Like basically, he's saying, why are we chasing on the Z twenty eight? You just got one guy that says he saw the Z twenty eight. So how do we know it has anything to do with it? Um, and he's got a point. I mean, he says like all we have linking Jesse to the murder is his brother saying that he was there, and we've just counted that. But all we have linking the Z twenty eight to the crime is Jesse James Swindell. Uh, but for some reason, his is more credible. And and there's and there is reasons for that. There is reason. There are reasons for that. And that's, you know, when, remember when we did like statement analysis, right? So we're looking at, it's not just that, we're not just saying one person says this and one person says that, and it's like a balancing act. So we're analyzing the actual statement, the behavior uh, exhibited while giving the statements. And so when we look at Jesse James Wendell's as we broke down, it's like there's so many indicators of truth there. Mm-hmm. There's no motive for him to lie at all. Uh, and and he, like I said, he may be fuzzy on the details, but I believe with 100% assurity that Jesse James Wendell saw a woman getting pulled into a white Z28. Now, part of what Gary's saying is, well, yeah, but that could have been a different day or a different time. Sure, I, I, I guess I can concede that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find it unlikely because it was the next day when they're like, holy shit, somebody died right there, right where we just saw at the same time we just saw this happen. 
Um, and it's also not just Jesse James Swindell. It's also his his his, his aunt, right? Aunt Mama Judy, uh, who who relayed the same story. Again, details off a little bit, but they both said they saw the same thing basically happen. Yeah. And then you take that and compare that to Troy Eldridge, who's changed his story over and over and over and over and over again. And then when I interview him, he's so like he she's out walking her dog in a house. It doesn't have a clue. He doesn't have a clue what happened that morning. And that's and that's very clear. And then you and then you take Shauna's statement, which I'd love to be able to talk to Shauna at some point because you know she's got the statement that says he never left that morning. There's so many reasons to not believe Troy Eldridge, but there's a whole lot of reasons to believe Jesse James Swindell. And like I said, that it's a lead. It may not lead anywhere. Maybe the Z28 has nothing to do with anything. But there's a pretty damn good chance it does. I mean, they, two people saw a woman being dragged into a car a half a block away where, from where a woman was murdered. Yeah. Uh, by what looks to be multiple offenders. So it's, uh, anyway, the, 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 that poll's really interesting. I'm glad Gary's doing that stuff. I like having someone on the page. Like, Paul Vanette's my other devil's advocate with the keys. Let's not talk about the keys again. Yeah, Paul, right. <laughs> Paul's always, like, on those on those keys. But what that does is it generates discussion, and it causes critical thinking. So I really appreciate both those guys for, uh, Bob Garwood is another guy that's on the fan page a lot. That is really, he's he's a very intelligent guy. And gets into some really good discussions, and I love even sometimes when I don't participate because I feel like I'm going to start a fight, and I don't want to start a fight. Yeah. I don't want to be, you know be mixed into it. But I always love going through and just like reading the discussions that are happening. And Bob and uh, Gary are big ones that are uh, on the fan page, and then of course Paul Bonnet is you know he he does his devil's advocacy on Twitter most of the time. Sure. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. All right, Bob, and some listeners were discussing whether Kia was sexually assaulted before her death. Although the Emmy report indicates she wasn't, and the rape kit too, I believe, investigators did mark yes under the sexual assault on their homicide review form. Uh, you might have covered this in previous episodes, but could we discuss this really quick? Yeah, to be honest, I don't have a really good answer for that, because it does. One of, one of the investigators' notes, or the homicide review form, mm-hmm. they selected yes for sexual assault, but there clearly was no sexual assault. I mean, yeah, the Emmy's, there was a rape kit, nothing. The Emmy, when they just robed her, I mean, she was fully clothed. Not only she had pants, a girdle, and underpants on when she was attacked. None of those were removed. There was there was no indication whatsoever that there was sexual assault. So I don't know if that was just that the initial investigator thought that she might have been sexually assaulted and just checked it off, or if it was just a, a typographical error, or why that was put in there. But no, she absolutely, no question, was not sexually assaulted. Uh, and speaking of sexually assaulted, I want—I don't want to dwell on this just really quickly. There was a few people at the last episode uh, that were upset and almost seemed like maybe there was some victim blaming when I said that a rapist finds a certain victim attractive. Please understand that I didn't mean sexually attractive. 
what I was saying was that, like that's that's what victimology is, right? So every offender is attracted to a victim for a particular reason. So it's you know there's, there's a like we always say they chose that victim at this place at this time, and all of that was for a reason. You know why that victim? So that that's all I meant. Did not mean that uh, it is the victim's fault for being attractive, or even that rape is about sexual or physical attraction. It's about a lot of control, rage, all these other things. So just wanted to clear that up before we move on. All right, moving forward from there, I'm just going to read this one to you, Bob. This is from the Facebook fan page. This one comes from listener Russell. He writes, So a racist arm of the Grove Rats are selling drugs, meth, to make the money in the early 90s and maybe even today. Could there have been some high school kids among the group at the time? Kiel may have caught some kids or perhaps even some adults in the act of selling on campus and reported them. The abduction slash murder could then be seen as a retaliation against her for taking action against the rats. What do you think, Bob? Well, what do you think about it? What do you think? The, do you think there's a connection there? I do think there's a connection there. I think given the nature of the stab wounds, uh, and I remember Jim Clemente even saying that they were... They couldn't control her, so he kind of said criminally inexperienced... Criminal inexperienced, and then also like with the stab wound on her head and some of the uh, sporadic cuts, it just indicated that this could have been done by some kids. Also, the fact that she was killed on the last day of summer school, right? Yeah, well, we think at this point, yeah. So, I mean, those two those two points kind of ring out in my head. Yeah, and for me too, like one thing that you know we brought up in the last episode was that you know the summer school is in session. Now she's killed between seven thirty and seven forty, somewhere right in there. Summer school starts at seven fifty. So people are going to be like, that's a busy time. I didn't realize that. I didn't think about the fact what a busy time that is. Mm -hmm. So uh, for those of you that haven't been on the website and looked at the map or the aerial photos, Spruce High School. So it's like a one square mile, uh, not even one. That's one square mile. It would be, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a mile around the, the, the block and it's a square. So if you're looking at it, the, the west side, the left side is where the apartments are, where Jesse and Troy lived. Just north of where they live is where the student parking is. Uh, and then... On you, that side of the road? Same side of the road, yeah. Yeah, well. yeah Just right north of their apartment. So, so that stretch there, it's Crenshaw Road on the west side of the school. Yeah. They, they, it's, it's taken up completely by the apartment complex, a tiny little patch of a wooded area, and then the school parking lot. Uh, for the students, that's on the other side of the street from the school. Mm -hmm. And then the, the students are all then walking from that parking lot across Crenshaw to the high school. There's a parking lot attendant working out in that uh, parking lot, uh, we've learned from the police notes. You've got people that were standing out front of the building. you got buses coming. I, well, I take that back. I don't know for a fact that there's buses coming. But there's there's there was at least four different faculty that were outside of the school working that day. So you got all these students coming in and faculty. So the my point is being when you're looking at the square, the the bottom and the left side of the square, the south and west, there's tons of activity right there all the time. And then you know where Kia was killed was was exactly opposite of that, up in the upper right hand corner or the northeast corner, and then her body's found on the east side, away from all that activity. So anyway, what I'm what I'm kind of getting at here is we mentioned in the episode, well, what if the guys are like meeting up in the parking lot and then, you know, going for a cruise to smoke a doobie or something before school? One, uh, several listeners have suggested, uh, what if it wasn't the guys in the white Camaro weren't the group of high school kids going to smoke? What if that was the drug dealers coming in to sell to the kids before school starts? Uh, I had a couple of people that told me that they just, you know, they had some experience in this and it was not uncommon for uh, drug dealers to hit up the school parking lots right before school. 
it's funny. A lot of drug dealers work at strange hours, like early morning hours. Like mm-hmm. they're up, they're grinding it out in the morning. They go home, they come back in the afternoon. They're working more than people might think. They're running a business. They're running a business. Yes. Yeah. So they're targeting. They're targeting their market. Uh, and, and and you're right. I've never really thought about that either. But yeah, if you're if you're selling pot. And one of your biggest clients are high school kids. And you know, in the summertime between uh, 7 and 7.30 a.m., there's a bunch of high school kids at the high school. Then, yeah, you get up at 7 in the morning and you go you go make some sales. It makes sense to me. And so I guess that kind of leading, we've kind of scattered all over the place from where that email yeah. started. But you know, he was asking, you know, could Kiao have witnessed something? Uh, and if it could have been a retaliation for that, I mean, I, sure. I mean, it, it absolutely could have been that. So say the guys in the white Z28 Camaro were uh, were maybe the 20-somethings that were selling weed to the or meth to the teens that were at the school, and maybe she witnessed. You know, that would be the place. Remember what I said. There's a parking lot monitor. There's a woman who stands in the parking lot monitoring it right, so before th- school. Yeah, so they're not going to be selling drugs right there in the parking lot. They're going to be off a ways. Right. Like, out of the sight of the teachers and the, the Yeah, the exactly. Staff. So let's say there is someone selling drugs at the school. And so they, like this is what I'm loving about the process. Everybody's input that they may not think is significant it is because we're like narrowing down like what the hell actually happened here. Mm. Because now you start thinking, okay, what if is uh, someone is there selling drugs in the morning before school? Well, clearly they're not going to do it in the student parking lot because there's a parking lot. There's, there's faculty there. So then you look at that map again and what I just explained to you a minute ago where the busy parts and the non-busy parts were. Where do you go? You go to the opposite side, yeah, the northeast corner by Apache, where there's no houses that can see you. Nobody from the school can see you. It's completely secluded. It's right around the corner. That's exactly where you would go make a drug deal if yep. you were going to make a drug deal in that area. Uh, and so, yeah, sure, Kiel could have witnessed a drug. That, that could have been the trigger. You know, it, it could be that she witnessed a drug deal and said she was going to say something. Who knows? But that, that's, that's a great point. I forgot what the listener's name was. That was Russell. Russell, great point, Russell. Thanks for the message. And, and again, let's, this is critical thinking at its best. Okay, and also there's still been a little bit of confusion about the make and model of the Z28 in the case. Listener Lexi asks, if we were talking about a white car with a blue stripe or a white car with a red stripe. So, Bob, can you clear this up? I'm pretty sure there were two Z28s. Well, I, I, we don't know. So, so here's the thing, and this is why it gets confusing. Mm-hmm. Jesse James Swindell never said what color the stripe was. The, the Z28 decal. Uh, he said it was big. It was on the bottom of the door, which for us lets us know we're looking at probably a 1980 or 1981 Camaro Z28. Uh, but he never says what color it is. No one ever asked him what color it is. Uh, Judy Gonzalez, I would love to see her affidavit and see if she, because she also said it was Z28 Camaro, but she said she thought it was light gray, whereas Jesse thought it was white. But Jesse never said on the record what color it was. It was Ronnie Blackwell, when he was being interviewed by Watts, that said that he believed that Shane or Sean Quayle was the killer because, you know, he had said he made a bunch of money in the apartments and he parked the car across the street for like a month or whatever. Uh, but he said that he drove a white Z28 Camaro with a blue stripe on the side, just like his cousin Jesse had described. So what we have is Ronnie saying that Jesse said that the stripe was blue. But here's a fun fact, too, and it's also Watts writing this down. The photo that we had posted on the website of the white Z28 Camaro that has like a kind of a burnt orange or brown or red, it's hard to tell from the picture, stripe along the sides, that is the car that's connected with who we believe to be Sean or Shane Quayle. And it is not a blue stripe on the side. It is a red or brownish orange, something like that stripe. So 
But that's where the confusion comes in is that Ronnie said, Jesse said the stripe was blue. The photos that we're finding so far do not have a blue stripe. So we don't know if we're looking at two different cars or if Ronnie got it wrong or Watts transposed it wrong onto his sheet. Uh, But we do know that the man that we're looking into right now is a person of interest who we believe to be the person Ronnie was talking about is connected to a white Z28 with a brownish red stripe. All right, Bob, thanks for clearing that up. One last point before we get to voicemails. Can you give us a status update on Ed 8s? Yeah, actually, I, I talked to Ed yesterday. I hadn't talked to him for a couple of weeks, and he is doing really well. He was pretty upbeat yesterday. We chatted for about 40 minutes yesterday. Uh, as far as his case goes, I can't get into a whole lot, and to be honest, I don't know a whole lot of actual details because, again, we're dealing with now Allison working with the DA, and then certain things become kind of confidential that can't really be shared, especially with the press. Uh, in his case, I was the lead investigator, am the lead investigator in his case, but again, I'm also pressed, so that gets a little weird. Mm-hmm. But what I do know is that Matt Bingham has stuck to his word. You know, he had told Allison, and she had said on the show a while back, that he said that he won't oppose any testing and that he'd even offered to pay for the testing for the biological evidence in Edward Eight's case. From what I understand now, he has followed through on that. He has some kind of a letter of understanding with Allison that he's not opposing anything. And I believe that the fingernail clippings from Elnora have been sent out or are being sent out finally for DNA testing 24 years later this week. It's finally happening. So we're going to find out. Again, we have a report from the serologist that seems to indicate that there are two different DNA profiles underneath those fingernails. And hopefully here within a couple of months, we're going to know who that second set of DNA belongs to. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. All right, let's get right to the voicemails. This first voicemail comes from Lisa. Hey, Bob and Mike, this is Lisa Garay calling. Long time listener. Never called in, but I had something I had thought for you. So as I, as I was listening to today's episode, I had thought about the summer school students. He made a comment about how just because kids are in summer school, that doesn't mean they're troublemakers. It just means they are bad students or maybe not the best students. Well, here's a thought. Um, I grew up in Michigan City, Indiana, close to you, um, and I went to summer school every summer that I could. And it wasn't because I was a bad student. It was because I was a good student and I wanted to um, take an extra class, a required class like U.S. history and like get it out of the way so I'd have an extra class period to take, you know, advanced biology or advanced chemistry or, you know, whatever. I was, you know, one of those nerdy, geeky kids. Anyway, there were several kids in those summer school classes that were there for the same reasons that I was. There were also, you know, kids who weren't the greatest students in that class. And there were also some kids who, um, wanted to play sports. 
Um, so maybe not the best students, but not like bad students, but they wanted to, you know, get a required class out of the way so they could have an extra class period to practice, um, particularly football, or go to the weight room to lift weights or, you know, whatever that might be. So um, I guess I'm trying to say there's maybe the same situation there. A mix of students in these summer school classes, not necessarily students that, you know, failed whatever class or whatever. So I don't know, just a thought. And then I guess the other thought is, that if it was the last day of summer school, I wonder if it would stick out to anybody that someone wasn't attending that day. I mean, if, if one of these students was really involved in this, I mean, I can't remember what time summer school started, but I would think the kids would be, you know, shaken up and, like, not come to school, not come to summer school on that last day or come late or something like that. And I guess, you know, summer school would be a perfect alibi for them. I wonder if they actually would show up or show up late or, you know, something. I'm doubting there's attendance records back from all that long time ago and all that. But maybe, I don't know, one of the kids in the class would remember or one of the teachers might remember. I don't know, something. Anyway, that's um, that's all I have. Good luck with all of this. Um, hope you have a good weekend away, Becky. And, um, and that's it. Bye-bye. Okay, those are some really good thoughts. They're not really questions there. I think that it is important to point out that I think Lisa's right. I don't I don't know, and I'm going to hopefully find that, that out this weekend or this coming week. I mean, I plan on going to Grady Spruce High School and asking some questions that might be able to answer some of these for us. Because I don't know if they like my summer school uh, at my high school where I grew up, it was only for like credit recovery for people that had failed classes or were behind. They didn't ha- they didn't offer the option to go and just like get ahead. But some schools do. So these could have been like exceptional students, not just the bad students. So I guess, first of all, I shouldn't have assumed that it was only the people that were behind that were there because that could go the other way. As far as attendance, I don't think we're going to find anybody that remembers who was missing school that day. I think our only hope is maybe that there are still some attendance records somewhere archived. uh, And that's also something that we're going to be checking on this coming week. So this trip is not just the to go see the graduation. That's Saturday after that. Uh, I'm not going to fly all the way down to Texas and not do some work. So got a few days after that to chase down some of these leads. Uh, but I did think it was interesting what you said, and I hadn't really thought about that before either, Lisa, is that would these kids say if they were actually students and they had committed this murder, would they have gone to class? And now we don't know that it's students. And I'm, I'm really kind of honestly, I'm kind of leaning towards now that maybe it's not, that maybe it was like, uh, somebody dropping someone off, or maybe it's you know the the drug dealers. I I, I guess I shouldn't even say I'm leaning towards because I I really don't know at this point. But it's an interesting thing to think about. Would someone go to school? And it, it reminded me of my senior year of high school. And this is kind of crazy. This happened, but uh, I went to a very small high school. My graduating class was 69 people, and one of my classmates that I knew actually I sat next to the guy for most of my school career because our last names were very similar, and when you get seated alphabetically. Uh, but on the way to school, he picked a girl up that he gave a ride to school uh, on a regular basis and attacked her. And it was it was a brutal sexual assault, and slit her throat, thought that he killed her. Uh, she, she thankfully lived through it. She's still alive and well today, obviously traumatized. But he actually did that on the way to school and then came to school with the knife in his pocket and blood all over his pants and hands and everything. He walked in. He wasn't in my class, but a friend of mine was in his class. And the guy comes walking in, and he's like, oh, what the hell is wrong with him? He's got, like, blood all over him. And then it was like an hour later, the police show, because the, the the girl was able to crawl out of the ditch he had left her in and flag somebody down. And police came and picked him up. But so 
Uh, I don't know what goes through the mind of somebody that does something like that. But anyway, it's just kind of an interesting thing when you asked me that. It reminded me of that situation when I was in high school 20-some years ago. Wow, that's crazy. Did you know this guy pretty well? Yeah, like literally, like from kindergarten on. His Like our last names, you know, they always teach you alphabetically. Sure. Our last names were like right next to each other. So yeah, like I think I sat on a rug with him in kindergarten <laughs> all the way up through senior year of high school. <laughs> okay, this next voicemail comes from Selena in Kansas City. Hi, Bob and Mike. This is Selena from Kansas City. I've been listening all along, and I've had something that's been bugging me about this case that you're working um, I don't understand how everybody keeps saying that if it happened between 6.30 and 7 in the morning, that it was just before dawn and that it was still kind of dark out. In the summer, the sun is up early and it stays up late, so there's a lot more daylight. The sun would have been bright by that time of the morning. Was it extremely cloudy that day or something? Just wondering. It's something that's been bugging me all along. Thanks for your show. Bye. That's a good question, Selena. So first of all, let me let me just correct that the the murder didn't occur between six thirty and seven. It was between seven thirty and probably about seven. I think the police were on scene by seven forty five, seven fifty, uh, right about then. So, but as far as the light outside, it wasn't like dark out. So what I did on my last trip, and it was at the suggestion of Jim Clementi, was uh, I, I looked up what time the sun rose on the morning he I was killed. And then what time she was out for her walk and was killed and just looked at how many minutes after sunrise that was. So and I don't remember off the top of my head, but I, I feel like it was like 36 minutes after the after sunrise, something like that. So what I did is I went and walked the area at exactly I'll just use that number because I don't remember 36 minutes after sunrise to see what the lighting levels and conditions were like then. And I kind of said, like, I kind of got a feel for what Jesse James Wendell was talking about when he said, like, he thought it was morning, but kind of like in between, like morning and day. It's kind of like the colors were kind of dull uh, just for a few minutes. And then the sun, you know, peaked up and everything brightened up and everything. And I don't know if it was a cloudy day. Um, I, I'm trying to remember. I have to go back and look at the historical weather data. So maybe next week's follow up, Mike, if you write me a note, I'll look that up. So I'll have that answer. Gotcha. But I think it was a normal, maybe slightly overcast day, if I'm remembering correctly. But no, it was by no means dark. The sun was up, and we have tested walking that area in the exact same conditions as far as how much time after the sunrise that she was out walking. Okay, and then we have one last voicemail here from Jennifer in New York. This is Fast Fingers, Jennifer. That's her. She got through again. Yeah, she did. Hey, Bob and Mike, it's Jennifer. I was just wondering, you mentioned that uh, the paperwork for Jesse's case is on the Conviction and Integrity Unit desk. Does that mean that it still has to go through a process to find out if they're willing to look into it? Or is it on their desk because it's already been approved to look into? Just wondering. Thanks. Bye. No, there's no more process for them to decide if they're going to look at his case. The exact words used to me were that Jesse's case is now on their docket. So they have already selected his case to be reviewed. It's being reviewed as we speak. So there's nothing There's nothing more in a process for them to decide if they're going to. So, so Jesse's in pretty good shape right now. I mean, he's got the Innocence Project of Texas reviewing his case and the Dallas Conviction Integrity Unit also reviewing his case and me and all of you with me reviewing his case. So if, if there's a way to get Jesse out of there, we're damn sure going to find it. But I think this is the end of the episode for today, folks. Um, thank you so much for downloading and spending your, hopefully, Friday morning commute with us. 
Like I mentioned, by the time you guys get this episode, I'll be on my way to Texas. I'll be attending a graduation in Lubbock at the Texas Tech University School of Law on Saturday. And then after that, we've got a lot of work to do on the case. So wish me luck. And make sure you download episode 313 on Sunday, where we're going to reconnect with Jesse and see what's going on in his world. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Our executive producer is Mike Bussing. All music for the show is created by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Amanda Meyer for creating our Friday follow-up logo. Thank you to our transcription team, Desiree Dunn, Sarah Hoyt, and Sarah Mueller. Also, a big shout-out to Chris Brinkley of SylviaConsultants.com, who designed, created, and maintains our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com. And thank you, as always, to all of you. Make sure you stay in touch. You can send us an email to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like the Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. The Dallas County conviction. You're talking over. I'm talking over you. And I think everybody's really excited about this. And I think we don't have to say. I don't have to say. Unfortunately, you can say unfortunately. You don't. It's up to you. You know, we nix your lines a lot. Quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah, So we maybe we leave that one in. All right. The other one. That was a great transition. Right. 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 Yeah. I set you up and you knocked them down, buddy. We're getting there. Yeah. (laughs) Bring that together. All right. Make sure I said it right. Man, that's just solid shit right there, you that's know. Good. That's good. Yeah. How about, um, can we? Can we? Can you get? Okay. Listener, Les, listener, Lexi asked if the listener let. Just like his, just like his, just like his cousin Jesse had described. Wow. <laughs> well, I, that's I fucked up, Bob. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's oh. the. I'll cut that out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that yeah. Out. But it's it, true. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just stare at each other and smile for a while, Mike. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. 
LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.